That could make you cynical pretty fast. I'm I'm all the way there. <laughs> this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, an administrator with the U.S. Department of Justice cautioned an official with the Louisiana Office of Juvenile Justice about the proposed plan to house juveniles at the state penitentiary at Angola. And several detainees at the New Orleans jail suffered injuries after a shakedown at the facility, this coming on the heels of another incident in which inmates sustained injuries in a raid last month. Plans for a proposed $9.4 billion petrochemical plant suffered a major setback Wednesday, with a state court vacating the air permits a state agency had previously issued. And the New Orleans Public School District has issued its most serious warning to Foundation Preparatory Academy after the school allegedly failed to report an assault on a special education student by an employee of the school only days after the new term started. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hi, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, Josh. Hey, hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Nick, couple stories from you this week. An official with the U.S. Department of Justice raised concerns about a state plan to send juveniles to a facility at Angola. You heard about a letter that was sent. What did the letter say? Yeah, so the letter was from Liz Ryan, who's the administrator of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, which is part of the uh, Department of Justice. And the letter raised you know, some of the concerns we've been hearing about this plan all along, um, concerns over the separation of, of youth uh, detainees and, and adult prisoners at, at Angola, um, as well as the fact that these kids are gonna be housed very far away from, from their families and in a more remote location of the state. Um, and this, this letter actually was sent in late July, so actually not just a few weeks after the, the plan was announced. Um, but we just got a copy of it through a public records request um, last week. So what what this administrator, Liz Ryan, proposed was that they work with the uh, office. And this, this office kind of coordinates juvenile justice policy and administration in states and, and uh, has access to some federal funding um, and kind of directs it to different states. And she said, basically, we can work with you to kind of identify some of the lower risk kids in in your facilities and move them out to, I think, ostensibly create create more space to house people and to to coordinate um, other housing options so you don't have to uh, move kids to Angola. Um, so that that was kind of the the outline of the letter and and. You know, we should note that when she wrote it, there was really very little public information about this plan. Since then, quite a bit more has come out, kind of as we've discussed, with the, particularly in this uh, federal court case, um, we've gotten some more information, but this was kind of an early, early uh, letter raising concerns. It sounds like the letter was echoed by the case that was then brought by the plaintiffs. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, part of what one of the things she she notes in the letter is that this could open you up to costly litigation, which has proven to be be the case or, you know, at least some litigation. So, yeah, I mean, and I think 
if you're the Office of Juvenile Justice, and we we saw this in a deposition, one of the the top officials in the in the agency gave a deposition related to the case, and and this letter was brought up, and he basically said, you know, they're offering to help with sort of our lower or moderate risk kids and move them, uh, you know, maybe move them around or find alternative housing for them. That's not going to ultimately solve the problem, which is these very high risk kids who are uh, engaging in these incidents, escaping, um, you know, hurting each other and, and staff members, we really need a more secure facility for, for those kids. Um, so I think that's kind of the uh, sticking point, but apparently they are still in conversations. Um, I'm not sure, sure exactly what the contents of those are at this point, but. Um, that, that explanation from from OJJ kind of makes sense until you think about it for a second, right? Because if you are moving lower risk uh, detainees out of the you know current secure care facilities, wouldn't that mean that existing staff would be able to devote more time and resources to the higher risk detainees who would still remain inside? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is what this official would argue, and that's what um, you know the civil rights attorneys who brought the case would argue. I think the one of the things is that this facility has these individual cells. It's this very, you know, it's the prison facility. Mm -hmm. And one, one thing they've been talking about is that the secure care facilities that they currently have are just not built like, like physically built um, with strong enough materials and sort of um, in a way that doesn't, that, that allows kids to, to kind of destroy them and also to, potentially escape, you know, and I, th I think I, I obviously haven't been in these facilities and I haven't been to the Angola facility. I don't know to what degree the actual physical infrastructure is going to make, make a difference. It is both like, it's both the thing that OJJ says they need. And, and one of the things that people who are opposed to the plan um, are opposed to because it looks like a prison and you know, it, it is a prison, but yeah. And so, and the other thing that I was curious about um, that you mentioned, uh, it, it, so they had this uh, three-day-long hearing uh, the other week for the judge in the case to make a decision about whether or not to issue a preliminary injunction blocking this move against the state. Um, and it, it, oddly, I thought after after finding out about this letter, it, it seems like the the letter from the Department of Justice was only kind of briefly mentioned once or twice. Um, did you have a chance to talk to the plaintiff's attorneys and find out why, you know, this wasn't highlighted more? Yeah, I mean, I talked to them. They kind of said, you know, we don't want to talk about our, our legal strategy. So I'm not entirely sure. It was it was briefly mentioned, but not not really pushed on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's probably important to note that this it's not the same thing as a DOJ civil rights division findings letter after a long investigation. Sure, sure, or something like sure. That. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is a letter more or less expressing a lot of the concerns that people had these initial concerns after, you know, the first reports of the plan came out. Um, you know, I do think it's notable. This is a, this is a federal government official this is why we, you know, obviously reported on it and found it newsworthy. It's not just an advocacy organization or, or something like that. But, you know, I think maybe maybe they 
they thought that they were able to get at kind of the same points in the in the letter um, in in other ways and in, in more more specific ways now that more uh, a few more details of the plan had came out. But basically, I'm not sure. So, what happened in the last day of the hearing last week? So the judge didn't issue a ruling, but basically called the the case that the civil rights attorneys had put on um, thin. Had said, you know, there's kind of limited evidence here that would give me, you know, the, the opportunity to, to block the plan. But she she had some questions for for the attorneys for the for the state, um, kind of about the implications of, of sending kids to Angola regardless of of the services that they have provided and regardless of whether or not they'll be um, intermingled with with adult prisoners. She basically said, you know, is this going to cause serious harm mentally for these kids to be sent to a place that they know is, you know, an adult prison, a, a notorious adult prison? Um, and what is this saying to them about who they are and, and who we believe they are, um, kind of as they're forming these ideas as they're still kids? Hmm. Um, so whether or not that's going to be enough for her to, to kind of put a pause on this, remains to be seen. She's set to issue a ruling by September 23rd and no kids are going to be moved by then. Basically everyone in the, uh, with the office of juvenile justice said, you know, this facility still isn't ready for kids and, you know, said, vowed that they wouldn't move kids until everything was ready and, and they had the staff and, um, everything else in place. So we'll see what the judge says and then we'll see, um, how long it takes the, the state to, actually move kids if if they're able to proceed. Mm, okay. And moving on to a little bit of deja vu, I guess, several detainees at the New Orleans jail sustained injuries last week, including lacerations and bruising that required medical treatment as the result of multiple uses of force by Louisiana Department of Corrections officers that were called in at the request of Sheriff Susan Hudson to conduct shakedowns of the facility. It sounds like we're talking about something that we talked about I think it was last week, but this is a new this is a new story. What do we know about the injuries and what is the sheriff's office saying? Well, we're still sort of gathering information about what happened. So last, you know, last month was this protest that we talked about where several detain a, a housing pod of detainees barricaded themselves in their pod for several days where there was no security present and basically there was this standoff um and eventually, the sheriff's office, along with help from, from DOC corrections officers, breached the pod. They shot beanbag rounds and, and sting ball grenades, um, initially said that there were uh, minor injuries, although, you know, we talked to several, several people in the jail who said they sustained broken bones, collapsed lungs, um, and, you know, were hospitalized for, for um, days or even a week um, in one case. So... You know, that's kind of the background here is, and, and I should say several detainees also said that they were specifically kicked and beaten by Department of Corrections officers. And these are officers, so these are state prison officers that don't usually work in the jail that are brought, that were being brought in. So, you know, this week we're reporting on, a, on these shakedowns that happened last week. And the sheriff's office hasn't said anything um, about these shakedowns. But we know from sources that, that the Department of Corrections was called in 
to conduct, conduct these searches uh, of cells um, and that there were several uses of force and, and several injuries um, resulting from them. And we're still trying to get more information. Um, the sheriff's office has kind of said that they're gonna put out this weekly report of, of minor incidents, ostensibly because they will be um, you know, making larger announcements about the major incidents. Um, they, these don't appear on the reports and, and they won't really answer any questions. They've confirmed that they did um, request the help from, from DOC to do these shakedowns last week. Um, but that's basically all they're saying. So that's so, yeah. I mean, so yeah, you, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that this sort of feels like deja vu. I guess the difference, you know, the difference between these two incidents is that what happened last month, you, you know, it, it sort of makes sense that they brought in DOC. It was an extraordinary incident. I mean, a shakedown. Um, I mean, that's that's sort of a routine operation in a jail, right? Why are the why are they bringing in uh, an outside agency to help with that? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question, you know, and I think that there could be lots of answers. I mean, they've been having trouble with contraband in the facility. You know, if you look at the last monitors report, the federal monitors that, that kind of oversee the consent decree in the jail, they talk about this issue. This was before Sheriff Hudson took office. It, you know, they were saying the shakedowns need to be uh, more frequent and kind of more thorough. And, you know, the, the office has been having these staffing issues. So, there, you know, there could be a, a reason that they said, you know, we need to be doing a more thorough, a more robust job. We don't have the capacity. Let's, you know, request the help of DOC. Whether or not the, the sheriff's office has kind of framed this in the brief statement that they gave me as sort of this regular thing that happens all the time. They said, you know, we have a longstanding relationship with DOC. The degree to that to which that's true is still not entirely clear to me. You know, I've been covering the jail for several years now, and I I haven't heard of, of DOC officers coming in and doing shakedowns, which is not to say that it hasn't happened. It, it, it very well may have. Um, but I don't, you know, as far as I can tell, this is not something that was happening all the time um, before before last week. And it raises some some questions, particularly if it, this is going to be a more regular thing about kind of what policies and what responsibilities Department of Corrections officials have when operating in the jail. Um, you know, the policies that dictate regular sheriff's deputies conduct, uh, they have use of force policies and, and other policies, you know, all their policies are, have been created under the consent judgment. Um, and with the input of, of the Department of Justice and civil rights attorneys. So that's, I think, a question. And, you know, this is something we see in the NOPD consent decree. You have other, when other agencies come into the city and they're, they're not following um, those same policies. So I think it, it raises some questions. Do we, so the other thing that, 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 that strikes me as, as, as odd and, you know, uh, notable at least and, and, and perhaps odd um, is that, you know, theoretically, we're still in the middle of, you know, an internal investigation into what happened during the protest involving G DOC. There have been, as you've reported, several, um, several allegations of unnecessary and excessive uses of force, uh, in, in some cases, uh, likely at the hands of DOC officers. Uh, we're yet to see 
you know, a single report come out of that. We're yet to see the video come out of that. Uh, use of force reports um, have not yet materialized. It just seems uh, it seems like odd timing when they're still, you know, they're still fresh off this last incident, which has all these outstanding questions. And you know, for all we know, uh, may what you know may soon result in in some litigation against the jail. We don't know that for sure, um, but it just seems like an odd choice at this moment to have done this to me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if we knew more about what their investigation is showing them, you know, if, if they do have evidence that during the raid, people were, you know, shot with their hands up or shot while on the ground by DOC officers using beanbag rounds or, you know, beaten and, and kicked while on the ground, that would certainly, you know, you would think give them some, some hesitation about bringing in more DOC officers uh, to kind of conduct these searches if, if they've shown that they're kind of willing to use this more reckless force. And, you know, to what degree the sheriff's office has has any sort of disciplinary oversight over these officers is, you know, an open question, I think. And, and I think probably is limited if I had to guess. So for DOC um, officers? Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, her, I, I, I would assume that that any discipline would fall under DOC uh, purview. Uh, her, the, the likely, I don't know for sure, but the limits, the limits of, uh, of what she can do is it, it's probably limited to, yeah, well, we're not, you know, we're not going to invite DOC to help us with various operations or we're not going or we're going to ask DOC not to send certain officers who were involved in you know, past incidents that are still under investigation. Do we have any idea about this DOC staffing in this uh, this latest operation for this shakedown? Was, was it the same people or do we know? No, we don't know. I mean, I asked for sort of details about how many and, and who and why the request was made in the first place and haven't, haven't received any uh, answer from the sheriff's office. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a important question, so. Yeah, and when you were and when you when they when you were told, by the way, uh, that this was a routine thing, you asked, you asked if, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, when when was the last time it happened? When were the last few times it happened? And you haven't gotten an answer on that either, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I so I asked when the last time it happened was. A spokesperson said that they don't reveal that, they don't reveal specific intervals for security purposes. Then I asked, you know, how, well, well, how many times has this happened since 2015? And they just never responded. So, okay, so just a, it's just a, just a, let's do a little transparency inventory on our transparent new sheriff. Um, so we haven't, uh, we haven't yet seen a single report come out of the raid. The video hasn't been released. Um, you know, we've gotten uh, some conflicting statements on that over time that uh, you know evolved. Uh, quite a bit. This newest operation, we uh, haven't gotten an announcement. It didn't appear in the weekly report that they've been putting out. Uh, and uh, we're told that this is routine, but we're not allowed to know, uh, you know, how routine it is, basically. That's where we're at. Yeah. Fair enough. That's a good wrap up, Charles. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle 
environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans' cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. All right, Josh, in a victory for the residents and environmental groups opposed to a proposed $9.4 billion petrochemical plant in St. James Parish, a state court on Wednesday vacated the air permits the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality issued for the project, which is linked to the Taiwan-based Formosa Plastics Corporation. What's the background behind this ruling that just happened? Yeah, so the um, state agency here, LDEQ, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, um, issued these permits for this um, company that's uh, part of the Formosa Plastics Group. It's called FGLA LLC, but you know, just for the sake of this conversation, I'll just I'll just refer to it as Formosa. Yep, it's very big, twenty four hundred acre. Uh, proposed site in the majority black um, fifth district of uh, St. James Parish, which is right, as we talked about many times here, right in the the middle of the chemical corridor. It's a a highly industrialized um, part of the state, part part of the country. Um, The air quality there is is already affected by all these different industrial facilities and, and the output um, that they produce, and and this facility, um, per these permits, would have um, been allowed to emit almost eight tons per year of ethylene oxide, which is a, um, a, a recognized as a carcinogen, and um, uh, almost thirty-seven tons per year of benzene, which, which is also recognized a, as a carcinogen. And um, it, it it also would have emitted upwards of uh, almost 14 million tons per year of greenhouse gases. And um, you know this this is of course um, Louisiana is is uh, uniquely vulnerable, uniquely susceptible to the effects of climate change. So yeah, that that's that's all part of of the story here. And almost as soon as the state agency issued these permits, it was subject to a challenge by environmental groups and residents um, who argued that the uh, LDEQ violated both the uh, Clean Air Act and also their public trustee responsibilities um, under the Louisiana Constitution. And in, in, a, in a really, let's say, comprehensive, at times forceful opinion that was released just um, yesterday, t- today's Thursday, uh, just released on Wednesday night, um, this uh, district court judge in, in uh, East Baton Rouge, Judge Trudy White, uh, said, yes, I agree with these residents and these environmental groups. LDEQ absolutely violated both the Clean Air Act and their public trustee responsibilities, and this whole thing's vacated. So 
time to go back to the drawing board, essentially. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it was a uh, climactic moment for, for these groups who were opposed to it. Do you think they'll appeal? I reached out to um, both the state agency and, and to uh, Formosa, which intervened here and said, hey, you know, what's your response? And, um, you know, I, I got back kind of a, um, you know, non-committal reply. We're evaluating our options. For, for most of this response, it was a little more um, uh, lengthy and they're saying that, you know, we disagree with this opinion and, and we're, you know, we're looking into our options basically. But um, I mean, the, these environmental groups are, it's, it sounds like some of them are I mean, I mean, one one of the phrases used in, in the press release uh, that Earth Justice, which is the the legal nonprofit representing these groups, put out was, uh, you know, this is a nail in the coffin for this project, and um, yeah, we want if in fact um, for most to you know benefited from uh, public funds in, in their push to create this project, you know, we want those funds back. Thank you very much. So <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 we'll see, we'll see, you know, what, if, if there's something in the offing in, in terms of an appeal, but I, you know, I, I don't know at this moment, whether that, that will be pursued or not. I would suspect, I mean, there's, yeah. there's quite a bit of money on the line with this project, right? Um, so, so I, I, I would suspect that an appeal seems more than likely. What. I dollar figure are we talking about for the cost of this plant? Um, nine nine point four billion is right. the top line. Right, so. and I'm sure they've sunk quite a bit of that, uh, quite a bit of money into it already. Yeah, um, I I I'm, I'm sure that's the case. I, I don't have an exact figure, and and, and I, I also wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if if there is in fact an appeal at some point. Have we heard it all uh, from state, you know, uh, from state officials like the governor's office or uh, parish officials? Because, you know, this was this plant was pushed by state level and local level officials as a major job creator. Right. Right. Um, not 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 yet, uh, Charles. I'm sure that they're following. I'm sure that they're aware by now of, of, of what's happened. And it would be interesting to, to get their input as well. This might be unfair to throw at you right now, Joshua, but what amount of toxins were they talking about contributing that are already permitted? So I'm trying to yeah, see like um, in the bucket of, right. of toxins that are already in the air, what would this have represented that's now not going to be there? There, there were two, they're called uh, criteria pollutants that really were the subject of um, the the appeal from the environmental groups. Um, one is uh, nitrogen dioxide, which is what helps form acid rain when, when it's in the atmosphere. And um, the other one, the other one's called PM 2.5, which means uh, particulate matter 2.5. And basically, the the modeling that Formosa submitted to LDEQ showed that their contribution, you know, to, to the, the ambient nature of, 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 of the air quality would, would, would have like a uh, material impact uh, throughout the parish that the, the emissions that this, this plant would be producing would push the, the pollutants in, in this case over the uh, air quality standards that, that are regulated by um, the, the Clean Air Act, and and so you know these environmental groups are saying like, hey, this this is like this is like 
you know, this is a no brainer. This is a bright line test, you know, before Formosa and after Formosa, before Formosa, we're, we're not above the air quality standards uh, here for, for these two. After we, we, we are above the air quality standards for these two. And they were transparent and about that in their materials. They submitted that. Hmm. And exactly. They, they demonstrated that. And, but then LDEQ came back with something a, a little bit. I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, the, the average uh, observer could be forgiven for seeing it as something like sleight of hand. LDEQ came back and said that, well, yeah, it, they, they may be contributing. First of all, that's up to us to define what that means. Even though we're pulling it directly from the federal statute, uh, we, we deserve some deference here in defining what that means. But, you know, they, they may be, quote, you know, contributing. But if you look at the specific contributions that they're, that they, that uh, Formosa would, would be uh, emitting here, those by themselves are not significant enough to uh, disqualify them from getting these permits. <laughs> so you know, even though they're over the the threshold, it's not it's not it's not Formosa's fault, and we shouldn't punish Formosa here. They're they're just you know your average um, <laughs> you know multinational conglomerate. Um, you know, there you could run into them at the local little league. I'm, you know, I'm putting it on a, a little bit thick here. <laughs> and they're providing yeah. jobs. Right, exactly. They're providing jobs. You know, um, they're, they're your little league, um, you know, sponsors maybe. You might yeah. see Formosa, you know, group on the back of some uniforms, you know, and um, yeah, like that, let's not let's not punish Formosa here, e even though it would be above the threshold based on their contributions. And the judge is like, that doesn't make any sense. That would be, you know, you know, turning by that logic, there are essentially no limits. Right. I mean, as long as as long as any individual facility on its own isn't isn't going over the, the cumulative limit. Exactly. Yeah. And then just build yourself a second facility and you can do it all over again. Yeah. Right. If you just look at everything in a discrete, you know, compartmentalized window, then yeah, you, you gotta, I mean, the facility that by itself would violate the standards, I guess, would be the only thing subject to um, disqualification. Right. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thank you very much. Marta, earlier this month, the NOLA Public Schools District issued its most serious warning to Foundation Preparatory Academy for failing to immediately report a physical assault on a special education student by an employee of the school, violating state mandatory reporting law, also potentially violating federal special education law. What happened and when did it happen? What we know so far from the district's warning letter is that uh, allegedly six staff members witnessed or were made aware of a teacher who physically assaulted a student in class on August 19th. Um, and despite state laws that require immediate reporting of any incident like this, uh, police were not made aware until the next week on August 23rd or August 24th, depending on which uh, agency you ask. But clearly, clearly a concerning incident that has risen to this most serious warning level from the district. And, and on that timeline, I'll note, it's not exactly clear you know, whether they reported before or after to the police. Uh, but according to the timeline in the letter, 
um, the parent of the student in question uh, went above the school's head and reported the incident to the school district. And on that same day uh, is when uh, the school made the report to the police. So it seems to be suggesting that possibly it was this report to the district that prompted the report to the police. And, and we've certainly seen things like that in the past where um, a, a police, a parent report to police or something else or the, or the district would. Charles, I can't remember in, in one off the top of my head, but I know multiple times we've seen like, oh, that the district has told a school they have to report something to the police. Yeah, which, we've seen that in the past for like, sure. What's the distinction between federal law and state law here? Sure. So um, the state law parts we're talking about here are, um, you know, educators, people who work with children are considered mandatory reporters. And if they see child abuse or suspect child abuse, they're supposed to immediately report that to local law enforcement and to the State Department of Child and Family Services. Mm -hmm. On the federal side of thing, we have special education laws um, protecting the student who's a special education student. And anytime seclusion or restraint is used on a student, that's supposed to be reported and logged and the parent is supposed to be made aware. And that this parent had not received a report from the school. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and so it, you know, we don't have a lot of details from the letter. Um, we got the police report. It doesn't really offer much more. It doesn't, even, it doesn't even say the name of the suspected teacher. It just says a known teacher. Uh, or a known staff member or teacher. I can't remember exactly what wording it used. So what seems to have happened, you know, if, 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 if you read the letter closely, is that this was an attempt, maybe perhaps an, initially an attempt to physically restrain the student. Um, and where that gets the federal law involved is that the department, uh, the, uh, is the uh, special education law um, idea and uh, the you know ideas uh, uh, you know sort of doctrine of free and appropriate public education for all students. Why they get involved there is that the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, has found that um, students who are in special education, so students with a disability, have historically been subject to classroom restraint, physical restraint at disproportionate levels, levels mm -hmm. that would go beyond, you know, where, where there was, you know, where there was a legitimate reason to, to restrain them, which, you know, suggests that it is possibly a form of disability discrimination, like a, a behavior, um, a behavior is, is being manifested because of a student's disability or a staff member, um, a staff member, you know, subconsciously, you know, doesn't believe that there's any other way to handle a student with a type of disability other than restraining them. Um, so the Department of Ed Education has very uh, stringent guidelines about when students in special education can be restrained, under what circumstances they can be restrained. And basically it amounts to, it has to be a situation where um, there is imminent, you know, the, the, the behavior is causing imminent danger to the student or to others. And uh, the restraint has to be done by someone who is, who is uh, received training and, you know, I believe some sort of certification in, uh, in crisis management. Mm. Um, and, and the letter, uh, you know, it, the, the, the existence of the letter uh, from the district and, and the language in the letter both suggest but do not say that 
perhaps those conditions had not been met in this incident. Incident. One other thing I would point out on that timeline um, is that the, the district um, says that the school, you know, began its own internal investigation before presenting anything to the police or contacting officials, and you know that flies in the face of this mandatory reporter law that. Mm. Those things are not supposed to be internally and only internally. They're supposed to be reported externally. Mm. Right, right. I mean, I, I think it would be appropriate for for a school to, you know, do, you know, some some sort of HR investigation or review, but only after that they they have contacted law enforcement and law enforcement has had a chance to interview people and gather evidence and everything else that they need to do, uh, because you know it's potentially a a, a criminal matter. Mm. Right, and I. I also think where this gets complicated, and I, I assume this happens in some schools and not in others, but you're weekend at school, you're a teacher, you're a paraprofessional, you're, man, you're also a mandatory reporter, everyone in that capacity is, but you also work in a chain of command in a school. So I do assume to some extent some school or some teachers or paraprofessionals might think they've completed their mandatory reporting if they've told their, you know, their supervisor or whatever, but, you know, that's, that's not the case. Right. Mm-hmm. You spoke and then in this case, we had six different individuals who knew knew about it, according to the district. So, you spoke to the boy's mother. What did she have to say? Yeah, she said, uh, you know, she said she's had multiple issues uh, with staff with her son there, um, and that she's obviously very concerned for him. And it's very a very frustrating last couple of weeks trying to, to deal with this and work through this. Um, and that she just, you know, has concerns for him. She also said her son is uh, pretty limited verbally. So, you know, she she called out the point that, you know, if there's one kid who wouldn't be able to come home and tell his mom what happened, you know, that's that's her son. Um, uh, I know that in the um, in that warning letter, the school is going to be required to do a lot of things, such as, you know, show that they're going to retrain teachers, show that they are doing a new special education plan for this boy. Um, and those things are all, we're recording on Thursday. Those things are all supposed to be happening by tomorrow, by Friday. Mm. Do, we, do we know what, what what the classroom setting was? Was it a special education class? Was there a special education teacher in the room? Do we know any of that? Um, I believe there were multiple, spe- there were multiple staff in the room. I don't know if it was explicitly a special education class or if it was a regular class with, um, you know, push in additional special ed support. Okay. All right. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Okay. You all have a good week. Thank you. Okay. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Crestel, Joshua Rosenberg, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.